and welcome to the Dear Dyslexic podcast series. I'm your host and fellow dyslexic Shay Wissell. Dear Dyslexic is a community and resource space for everyone, but in particular for young people and adults who have dyslexia. Today, our guest speaker is the Executive Officer of DSF Literacy and Clinical Services at Dyslexic Spelled Foundation of WA. She's an educational and developmental psychologist and qualified teacher with extensive experience in the field of literacy education. She supports schools with literacy planning and recommends appropriate classroom-based and individual strategies for struggling students. She's the president of Ausbald and received an Order of Australia in 2016 for all her wonderful work in children's literacy and working with children with learning difficulties. I would like to welcome to the show and excited to talk with Mandy Nathan. Thanks so much, Mandy, for joining me here today. That's my pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to it. So, Mandy, D-Dyslexic is all about raising awareness of the successes and challenges that those with dyslexia may face. And you have had a broad and exciting career working as a teacher and an educational psychologist in the area of literacy and learning difficulties. Can you tell us how you became involved in this area? Okay, well, it was um, something of a convoluted journey because I actually started working uh, with children who were um, in care. So these were children from families that were very dysfunctional, um, many, many problems, but kind of complex lives. And the children um, were in uh, residential care and my role um, was uh, both psychologist and education officer in terms of helping them to um, go to school, stay in school, working with the teachers to uh, to make things work out. And even though my initial uh, uh, kind of role really... Uh, focused more on the actual behaviour and social issues around that, I discovered quite quickly that for a lot of them, the reason they were very reluctant to go to school was because they couldn't read. And so I guess my uh, my journey into the area of learning disorders started with working with children who simply had literacy issues. And to be honest, that's still a major area of concern for me, that we have a lot of children in Australia um, who really struggle with literacy. So it's a, it's a big area of concern. But working with these children, what it prompted me to do was to investigate perhaps what were the best ways to both upskill these children quickly so that their lives at school wouldn't be so miserable and um, to, to support them in learning how to read and write. And that took me on something of a journey around um, finding out what the best instruction was for students in terms of literacy, why some students struggled as much as they did, and uh, and introduced me to a lot of the research that um, underpins, I guess, our approach and understanding of both learning disabilities such as uh, dyslexia and dysgraphia and dyscalculia as well as um, what is the most effective uh, approach to teaching reading and and then how to support students who really do struggle. So do you think these children's literacy skills were so low because they hadn't really accessed school because of the family environments they'd come from? Look, I think there's a mix of things. We know that children who come from more disadvantaged backgrounds and children who come from backgrounds where there's a degree of kind of trauma and uh, um, other disturbances happening in the family are more likely to start school without their foundation skills in place. And by foundation skills, I mean 
a reasonable level of vocabulary, um, some degree of phonological awareness, you know, the capacity to um, hear the sounds in words or rhyme, you know, their, their ability to sort of play with the English language in a way that gives them access to the fact that it's made up of sounds and um, and the other kinds of aspects of, of foundation um, knowledge that really helps children get a good start to reading. So I think children from very disadvantaged backgrounds will often both uh, struggle because they have uh, poor foundation skills but then potentially will continue to struggle because perhaps they miss small school, they move from school to school, they get a bit of a bad rap in the classroom, they um, become unhappy and so then sort of play up and the more they play up the more school that they miss and so it becomes a bit of a vicious cycle I think. Yes, it does. It's interesting you talk about the foundation skills because I actually worked on a project called Let's Read. Okay, great. Um, and and I'm sure that in there there was a lot of uh, emphasis on building those foundation skills. Yeah, and just the um, I think supporting parents know that words are everywhere and that you know you don't have to sit yeah. down and read a book all the time. It can be using words yeah. at the supermarket and, and down the local street and encouraging people that may not be able to afford books or don't have a lot of access to them to be able to use literacy in other ways to work yes. with their children. So. And even the, the knowledge that part of the foundation skills, I mean, part of the, the families that I worked with, many of the, the parents really struggled with reading themselves. And I would really emphasise the fact that actually it's probably more important just to talk to children, just to, and it's brilliant to tell them stories, tell them stories about, you know, what you did when you were a, a child or imaginary stories about you know who might live up a tree or on the moon or whatever it's the telling of stories it's the using of language and vocabulary actually that is a stronger predictor of ongoing literacy success than than necessarily reading books and having books in the home although of course that's very important it's not the most important thing I think that may be one of the reasons why with my dyslexia I'm such a strong reader and not just because my mum read to me a lot but also her oral language with me because she told me a lot of stories we sang a lot of songs when I was little um so I think that really helped to reduce the impact and it would have helped you in terms of building vocabulary building a kind of world knowledge just having that kind of knowledge of you know how the world exists things that exist in the world and where you're going and um and just hearing about things and stories and other places and possibilities. I think for some children, if they do live in a very, uh, well, language-poor environment and they're not exposed to those kinds of stories and possibilities, they don't have the background knowledge, the vocabulary to even necessarily really understand some of the stories that they're reading. So Mm. then, then the... The, the reading isn't as exciting or pleasurable as it is for somebody who does have a reasonable background knowledge and a better vocabulary. Yeah, were there um, lots of... Are there, what were some of the key things you did with some of those kids to help them um, improve their literacy? Well, I guess, you know, there were a couple of things. One was really working with students who... Um, and I guess this was all before I even discovered that dyslexia existed, to be honest, because <laughs> we uh, we didn't even talk about dyslexia back then. It, you know, we sort of I'm talk, talking about 30 years ago. Uh, 
we were, I was really, and, and to be honest, I think I'd probably still approach it in the same way. I was just really wanting to get as many of the children reading as I possibly could. Mm. It wasn't really about discovering whether they had dyslexia or they didn't. It was really just about really supporting as many of the children as possible. So um, it wasn't so much about having a kind of persistent and enduring difficulty such as dyslexia. It was more about... Um, trying to find ways that would actually assist as many of the as the students as possible. Now, some of these students were uh, quite young, 6, 7, 8, but others were 16, 17 and 18. So obviously I would approach things in a different way for different age groups, but actually fundamentally there would be still certain things that I would need to teach. Mm-hmm. So we would need to find a way of teaching that language written language is a code Uh, it's a code for the sounds that we use when we speak and there's been a code developed it's a complicated code because we're talking about English which is the most complicated or you know perhaps the second most complicated alphabetic system in the world but it is a very complex system so it is a difficult one to learn but nonetheless it is a code and in order to learn the code you need to learn the bits of the code and you know to learn that this sound you know, we, we make this sound when we speak and we write the sound down by using this letter or this group of letters together. And that's how our code works. And it's a matter of learning that in order to read um, so that you can look at the code and work out what it's representing. And it's about learning that in order to spell so that you can think about this word is made up of these sounds and this is the most likely way I'm going to write down each of those sounds because I I know the code somebody's taught me. So even if I'm working with a 16 year old I, I discovered quite quickly that Actually, you've got to start from that point and really explain that. This is what this is what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with a code. Now, I might speak in a very different way to a 16-year-old. Well, I would speak in a very different way to a 16-year-old than a 60-year-old, mm. but I still want to give them that information because I've found over the years that a lot of 16- and 17-year-olds who are really struggling with literacy have never really understood that. They've kind of tried to read every word that they see and remember what every word that they see is they don't really get that there's a shortcut to this process if you get your head around what the code is. Mm. So so we always start with that. Um, I think when I'm working with older students, I'm going to be using a lot of material that's much more age appropriate for them. And I'm going to work still through at a, at a bit of a, 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 a in a clear sequence. So I'm going to take students through from, you know, a certain number of phoneme grapheme relationships or letter sound relationships, do some reading and kind of, funny little fun activities with those then build that up to some more phoneme grapheme relationships or letter sound relationships add those into what I now know use some material to build that up finding really good material for older students is more difficult but there is some around that's that's really quite useful or you know kind of making up our own but I did find that at that time there wasn't a lot of material around. Uh, look, to be honest, I don't think I think there's still a bit of a gap in that that area. But mm. um, I would know that unless I actually kind of covered at least some of that with the students, they would never really get it. They would constantly be trying to commit everything to visual memory or guess from context or mm. guess from the look of a word, and they'd often be getting things wrong. So. That was a big learning curve for me because initially when I started, my whole emphasis was on trying to find things that interested them, like, you know, motorcycle magazines or -hmm. or dinosaur catalogues or something because I was thinking, well, that's the way to go, get them interested and then it will all start falling into place. But 
actually for a lot of students it still didn't work and, um, and you know they would get very frustrated because people had tried lots of different things. So for me it was really about discovering they needed to learn how to read, they needed to learn the building blocks, it needed to be delivered in an age-appropriate way. I went out finding as much material as I possibly could that would work for that. And then alongside that, I think really importantly, it was about starting to build vocabulary and building that kind of world knowledge. And that world knowledge can be gained definitely not from having to sit in front of a piece of text and read it, but listening to material, watching videos, thinking about issues, having conversations with other people and building that that kind of language really because you can't develop reading comprehension if you haven't got language comprehension. So it's about those two streams constantly running alongside each other and that's definitely the sort of work that I did with students um, when I was working uh, in the, the welfare sector and working with students who had sometimes dropped out of school altogether or they'd been expelled for you know up to 16 different schools and, and nobody wanted them in their classroom anymore. So what we were finding was that there were a lot of kids who were you know needing this quite good explicit instruction but also lots of kind of conversations and discussions around you know the world about them. Um, I think it was at that point that I started realising that there were some students who, many of the students responded really well and made really great progress, leaps and bounds, you know, several years in, in the matter of a, a number of months. But then I was sometimes coming across some students who still seemed, you know, bright, really capable, intelligent, funny kids who... Um, I thought had a great potential but still seemed to be struggling despite you know the material that we were giving them and I think it was at that point that I started thinking okay there's something going on for some of the children not not a huge number of them a, a relatively small percentage but but there were some students who despite the fact that you could tell they were bright competent kids they really were not making the same progress as the other students. So that was when I started kind of really investigating learning disorders and why do some students find learning a particular skill, a very kind of narrow band, why did they find this so hard? Mm. And that's interesting because you know, 30 years ago, that's when I was in primary school and nobody picked up. There was always comments in my reports, lazy or not paying enough attention. And just in English and grammar, until I got older when I started to struggle with maths, but um, there wasn't much around then, and I think even now there's still quite a misconception, or there's sometimes there's not a clear definition. I talk to some people; they say we don't use the word dyslexia at all. That's not a good word to use. And other people say, well, it's a learning disability, or it's a learning difficulty, or specific learning impairment. So we don't even have a really clear diagnosis. Do you think it's because it's so new still in Australia that there's a misconception, and even I think sometimes in the way it should be assessed, and then um, therapy that should support particularly children um, as they go through school yeah I look I think I think we've I think we've made progress and so that's a, a positive mm. but I do actually think there's still a lot of misunderstandings I think there are myths out there around dyslexia um, and I think there there remains massive gaps in um, in the knowledge of uh, teachers of principals of psychologists uh, speech pathologists uh, parents Children, so I think mm. that there's a there's there's a, a, a lot of um, confusion still. 
I um, do believe that the progress that we've made uh, relates to a clear understanding of what a learning disorder such as dyslexia is. I do think that um, there is quite a lot of commonality now in the discussions that certainly I have with people about what um, uh, 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 what dyslexia is, for example, that, that it is a, a reading disorder, that it is um, very kind of narrow. This is a key academic skill that children are learning, but that it is um, that, that it is a specific learning disorder in that there is not this is not reflected in in other areas of that child's capacity. They can have you know, very strong skills right across the board in a whole lot of different areas. But what makes this a specific learning disorder is that it really is focused on a key academic skill and in this case it is the development of reading. Um, and I think that there is a slightly better understanding of that. I think there's also a better understanding of the fact that, that something like dyslexia is persistent and enduring and that's one of its kind of defining features. It's mm. not something that you can cure by taking omega-6 tablets or, you know, jumping on a trampoline every morning for a year or, or any other kind of mysterious and magical and unrelated um, activity. It is very much something that it is part of that person's um, neurodevelopmental makeup. Yeah. Um, it's, it's called dyslexia, meaning it is a di difficulty a, at the word level. Um, and it dis suggests that it is a developmental disorder, not something that has been acquired during a person's lifetime. Mm -hmm. So um, by definition, it is viewed as this is part of the person. It is a neurodevelopmental disorder that is very much specific to that person. Now, I know for some people, they might kind of say, well, you know, why refer to it as a disorder? It's, you know, it's just... Um, it's just a, a difficulty that that child has, and I guess that's I I have no problem with that. I don't you know I don't think that it's all about the label for me, and, I, and that's partly why I quite like the term dyslexia because I just think that it encapsulates in some ways the fact that this is a unique difficulty with reading that this person has, but it doesn't have any bearing or reflection of all their on all their other capabilities and. Um, uh, you know skills and talents so for me it's just saying this child will have a great deal of difficulty learning to read and when they do learn to read they will potentially go on to have other associated problems because of their reading difficulty that we need to take be aware of and we need to support those students throughout their education so that they can achieve uh, to their potential, which is often a very high potential. Yeah. Um, the, the, really, what we see for a student with dyslexia is the fact that they have difficulties reading accurately and reading fluently. And that's the key in many ways. It is difficulties reading at a word level accurately and difficulties reading at a word level fluently. So with ease, effortlessly, you know, being able to pick up a piece of text and just read it out loud without any trouble um, at that level that we might expect, say, for a 10 or 11-year-old, despite the fact that they've had good instruction. And I think that's really critically important. And that's the other big step that's been taken in the last decade. It's the notion that 
we need to check to see how this student would respond if we gave them really good instruction and a really good intervention program. Because if after six months of the intervention, this student is reading beautifully and without any problems, then I'm kind of going to say, well, do you know what? I don't think they've got dyslexia. I think that potentially they just weren't very well taught to begin with. They've had big gaps in their instruction. They've now been addressed and this student's going to be fine. So this is not a persistent and enduring problem. If their reading improved, but say their handwriting didn't and their spelling was still quite poor, their grammar, the way they structured their writing, would you still say that they were dyslexic or would you say that there was something else going on? Well, I would probably then say, mm, I think this might be a written expression disorder because spelling is, if you've got, if the reading accuracy and the fluency is beautiful, if they're fine in that area, um, and sometimes, you know, sometimes people will say, well, look, my reading is fine now. I read really well. I read accurately. Um, give me a really complicated piece of text and I can read it quite quickly, accurately, fluently, etc." Then I'm going to start thinking, mm, I wonder whether there is still some whether this is a dyslexia or whether it's more likely a dysgraphia, so mm. a written expression disorder. Because um, I think for a student who's who's reading really well, um, but they're having problems with writing, getting down on paper what it is that they want to say, their writing, their spelling is still appalling despite lots of lots of good spelling instruction, then I'm starting to look at a written expression disorder rather than a reading disorder. Now, some sometimes what you see is a student who has both. They mm. do have a reading disorder and they have a written expression disorder. Their reading disorder is maybe uh, quite mild, um, but you, you sort of see that, for example, when they get very tired, they start misreading words quite mm -hmm. easily. Or So what you see is still some residual impact. Or even though they are reading far better than they were, when you actually assess how quickly they read, you find mm, they are reading well, but actually in comparison to where you'd expect them to be rate-wise, their rate is still you know, pretty low. So I think what I'm seeing here now is some residual impact of the dyslexia, but I'm still seeing an associated written expression disorder. It's interesting you say that because that's what my diagnosis ended up being. Right. Because my okay. reading is much better than my writing. Yes. But okay. if you give me a journal article or research paper to write, it takes a long time. By the end of it, I'm exhausted. <laughs> yes. I just want to have a nap. But I like to, I will, I can sit and read a novel for hours. Yes. Um, but when I read, the letters will change. So I know at the end of the sentence that something wasn't right. Yes. And I'll go back yes. and I'll reread it and I'll go, oh, yeah. And so yes. it slows me down. But um, I'm so used to it. And I guess it doesn't impact me enough to go, I don't want to read. Um, That's right. I really look, enjoy I think... it. We do see that so so often where, it, you know, the, the the parents come in with their child and they'll say, look, this child, I mean, you know, little um, Beryl, is, uh, her reading's fine, but her, her spelling and her writing is where the issue is. And then when we do the assessment of their reading, we actually find that it's not actually fine, fine. It's it's good. It's it's a lot better than it probably was because the child's had lots of um, intervention. But actually, 
when we look at their reading, we see they're still kind of having to double back, reread things because mm-hmm. they make lots of accuracy errors. But they've developed all sorts of good coping strategies, and their coping strategies keep them going, which is fabulous. You know, this is this is what people do need to do in in all kinds of areas. They need to develop little coping strategies if they have particular difficulties with something. But we can still see what I would describe as a, the residual impact of dyslexia. But where we're seeing a much more significant impact is in the writing and the spelling because of course it's easier to read than it is to spell a word mm. you know it you you, you right. can look at a word like um light and sort of know okay that's light i remember that igh goes together and, and you know represents the i sound so that's light light yep that's light i've got it but if i say to somebody okay you need to spell light then they go into a bit of a panic and think oh gosh is it the I with an E after the T way of writing the I is it just I E together is mm. it is it you know I G H I remember that's one you know the, then suddenly they're faced with the dilemma of choosing which way to write the I sound down and um, and there are twelve different ways you can write the I sound down so suddenly you're faced with this major dilemma. And uh, and so spelling is more difficult than reading. Not in all languages, actually. If you're learning Italian, it's pretty well, you know, the same back and forth because mm-hmm. uh, there's only one way of writing down each sound. Um, but we, unfortunately, have a very, very complicated um, package to deal with. And so spelling remains a major hurdle for a lot of students with dyslexia um, and for those who have both dyslexia and dysgraphia or Mm. both a reading and a written expression disorder then of course it's a real double whammy and people say to me haven't you used spell check i'm like of course i've used spell check i mean that's one of the biggest tools that people with um, reading and writing disabilities use or disorders use but um spell check doesn't pick up everything if you've got the word that's the right word but spelt the wrong way for that context and and unfortunately we have a lot of words like that in Mm. english so there's a lot of those words. There's also a lot of words that you can put into a a piece of writing where they're spelt correctly, but but it's a slightly different word from what you meant to put in there. Yes, and so yes. the, it doesn't I do that very quite often. make sense. But it doesn't come up as being a spelling error. No, um, and then so, proofreading yeah. it and you think, oh, yeah, that's right, because it's like your brain goes faster and it just assumes that that's the word that you wanted to use and so you miss it all together so it fascinates me how the brain works like that but you mentioned you touched on before about labels and um like I from a personal perspective I think it's really important that people should be assessed so then that if they've got the the diagnosis that then they're able to get the right support yeah do you think that that's in I mean, people don't like labels, but I found it helped me to have a label because I understood why I wasn't like everyone else. And do you think that's important for children to make sure they've got the diagnosis and then so that it supports them in getting help? Yes. Look, I think... I think two things. Well, actually, I think a lot more than two things, but um, I'll, I'll start with two. Um, I, m- my view is that we should be working on what I refer to as a response to intervention model or a three-wave model. So that essentially would say that when we talk about education, what we should be aiming for is absolutely um, high-quality instruction for all students 
to ensure that the vast majority of children go on to be readers and writers. So we get that first wave in, that really good instruction in the, the early years, good evidence-based practice in the early years of education. Um, what we then see is that if we start seeing a few children kind of falling a bit behind, they're not kind of quite keeping up with their peers, maybe they haven't had the same kind of background opportunities that other children have had, we very quickly... Um, put in place some support for those students. We very quickly give them the opportunity to have very regular kind of little catch-up sessions so they don't, so the gap between them and their peers doesn't start to get bigger and bigger. So I guess to some extent I would say treat first, assess second, rather than let's wait around for two years to have an assessment. I would just say five-year-olds struggling quickly put in place some support mechanisms for those children, any of the children in the classroom who are, and start trying to ensure that they don't fall further and behind their peers. We want them to stay kind of on the same pathway. Yeah. When we talk about the third wave, we're talking about those children who, even with that extra support, um, what we can start seeing are some fairly major gaps in their foundation knowledge. We can see that they really need some perhaps more intensive support, perhaps one-on-one, -on -one, perhaps in a small group, but importantly delivered by somebody who is very good at what they do. So somebody who really understands uh, reading instruction and reading difficulties and can really work very quickly and very efficiently with that child. Now, it's at that point particularly with the new diagnostic criteria uh, that's outlined in DSM-5, so mm -hmm. the diagnostic manual, um, what we see is that if any child continues in that space for six months getting good intervention, but we're still not seeing a really good... Um, Strong pro we're not seeing really good strong progress being made or they're moving, even if they are making progress, which is great, they're making progress at a slower rate than we would expect. Um, it's at that point, I think, that it is very important to have an assessment. So I don't think we wait until a child is eight and then we say, okay, this child really can't read and everybody else in the classroom can, so maybe we should get an assessment. Perhaps it's a learning disorder. I think that if we are really working hard to provide those three layers, we're going to have far fewer children falling behind generally. And those children who really do persistently struggle will get quite intensive support. And those students, if they then don't make great progress, as we would expect with that intensive support, um, or maybe they make progress but at a slower rate, as I say, then I think we could do an assessment. And I think that's important for a number of reasons. It's important because I think, as you say, it helps the child to understand. Now, when people say, oh, we don't like giving labels, mm. people give labels all of the time. You can't prevent that from happening. And it gets put into school reports, as you were saying, you know, needs to try harder is lazy, whatever it happens to be now. Hopefully that happens a lot less now. Yes. But I think the implication is still there. You know, comments about attitude or some other things that just creep into reports still occurs. In that, there's a bit of a label. Perhaps it's lazy that's implied. Perhaps there's an implication that this is as good as the student can do and they're a little bit stupid. Mm -hmm. Now, that would never be put into a school report. And yeah. most, I mean, I think, 
very few adults would ever say that of a child, but a child will say it about themselves. Mm -hmm. So when we say we don't like labels and we want to avoid using labels, I think the problem is that if we don't explain to a student what's happening for them, then what we risk very quickly happening is that they will label themselves. Mm -hmm. And the label they will choose is stupid or dumb or crap you know whatever it is that they choose it's not going to be very complimentary and that is a much worse label I've had students leave my office practically skipping with joy seriously because they've discovered that they have a learning disorder which sounds kind of depressing on one level Mm. you might think (laughs) but for them it's kind of like I'm not dumb I'm not stupid this is what it is it's this kind of little thing that means it's hard for me to read but actually I could go on to be a you know neurophysicist if that's what I really choose to do Mm. and I get the right kind of support to go down that pathway and I think sometimes it's the the other children that start to give the labels I know I've got um, someone in my family that that's happening to at the moment and the parents haven't explained what's going on to them and they're coming home saying, well, this boy is saying that I'm this and this person's saying I'm that and why can't I do this like they are? So, um, yeah, it's interesting because he's been given the labels and he's going home and saying, well, why are people saying this about me? Mm. And look, just recently we've been very involved in a... um, uh, We work closely with Curtin University um, and a number of other universities as well, actually, but I'm part of a research team at Curtin University and um, our project over the past uh, almost 18 months now and going on into the future is working on reading uh, disorders and Mm self-esteem. And so it's been very interesting uh, the initial pilot part of the program well well program it's not a pilot part of the program but the initial stage of the research really was to interview uh, children with dyslexia interview their parents and then interview teachers so we've actually done interviews with a, a large group uh, um, of students a large group of parents and a large group of um of teachers and the responses has been very interesting and the number of students who reported feeling quite relieved when they got their diagnosis is very very high Um, the number of parents who felt relieved when their children got the diagnosis is high as well now um, I think it means you've got some language to uh, use you've got uh, a conversation that you can then have with the child about what's happening you provide to them a kind of meta language which allows them to sort of think about it I mean, we did some little films with students and they talked a bit about their dyslexia and one of the things that uh, one very young child was talking about was what she thought um, uh, um, what dyslexia was and and for her she was sort of saying I'd rather not have dyslexia but it doesn't really matter that I do and what it is is just you know the pathways in the brain get a bit confused about the sounds and make it hard for for me to read and for her even though she still needed a bit more time to really get her head around what it actually meant she she was able to have a conversation she was able to tell her teachers that she had dyslexia she was able to tell her friends that this is what it was no big deal but this is kind of what it meant a bit like this is why I wear glasses or you know, whatever it happens to be. So she felt really kind of comfortable talking about her situation. And Mm. I think the research evidence tells us that that's an important part of building self-esteem and resiliency, to be able to understand what's going on.
And I think once I got, because I wasn't diagnosed till I was 27, and yep. afterwards I just said, well, I'm dyslexic, I'm dyslexic. And my family like, well, can you stop saying you're dyslexic? I said, well, I am. And I think it was 27 years going, well, I don't know what's wrong with me and why aren't I like everyone else? Yep. And for, I think, probably the first year, that's all I would say. And they were like, oh, <laughs> can you stop saying it? But I think yeah. it helped me to start to process because it was three from primary school, secondary school and through my university degrees um, really hard. And I, exactly. I and I didn't know. So like, I didn't know that people read differently to me. So I think being naive helped as well because I didn't realise that other people were better at certain things. But over years, you realise that you aren't... Like, I didn't understand jokes. Like, sometimes I still don't understand certain things. And I think, well, at least I know now why. Yeah. Um, and look, everybody is different. I think this is the interesting thing about the DSM-5, that it helps us to kind of narrow down, well, look, what are, what are some of the very specific things we can actually say about a person with dyslexia? Because there is such a big difference across, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. people say, well, people with dyslexia are more artistic. Actually, there's no truth in that. But <laughs> but there will be people with dyslexia who are extremely artistic mm. and there'll be people with dyslexia who are not just yeah. like uh, the population, the rest of the population. The mm. thing, and then there will be people, I think people with dyslexia sometimes demonstrate more resilience because their, their journey through education has been so much tougher. Mm. So they actually develop quite strong strategies to cope. I think sadly... The students who drop out of you know, uh, of school and go on to have kind of uh, a lot of very negative uh, repercussions of their learning disabilities are students who haven't got any sort of support um, around them and and for them um, their the fact that they struggle so much with reading has such a big implication on the rest of their life that they you know they don't go on to be a world famous artist or act or you know um, entrepreneur they they actually end up in jail mm. so so I think um, it's it's difficult to sort of say this is what a person with dyslexia does or has or these are their special talents because the reality is that there's nothing that we can say this is something that stands out for a person with dyslexia really right across the board what we can say is that a child with dyslexia and an adult with dyslexia will have a much higher level of difficulty learning how to read and then maintaining their reading ability particularly when they're under you know, timed conditions or um, pressure or they're tired, you know, this will continue to kind of be a bit of an issue for them. And then that clearly has implications in other areas and that people with dyslexia are quite resistant to different types of intervention to support them, you know. And so what's important for particularly students who have very severe dyslexia is that we work very hard to find mechanisms um, and technology and opportunities to support those students and we're very aware of the fact that they need that support. That's what I try to explain to people that it is like a spectrum because some people say well how come you've been able to get so far and other people can't and it's interesting some people I meet you know we have the underlying issues are still the same but our skill sets are varying and it's true about the support and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to set up Dear Dyslexic was because of the high incidence of particularly young boys when I was working in, as a speech pathologist, the issues they were having. And I kept thinking, what happens when they leave the school system and there's no routine, there's no structure, there's no support? 
And for some, some of these children, you could see that, you know, their path could end up being quite difficult. Um, and so exactly. I wanted to set up the foundation so we could start to talk and try to somehow reduce that impact so we have less young men ending up going down that pathway if they can be better supported in school and women as well, girls. But, you know, we have a higher percentage of boys in prison than we do girls. Absolutely. And, I mean, even just job opportunities mm-hmm. and, and that kind of self-confidence. So I think I think the the issue that we have is that if students base kind of all their self-worth around uh, you know their capacity to read and write then then for many of them they are going to leave school uh, early they're not going to um, they're not going to be successful they're not going to go on and get further training in some area they're going to try to avoid anything that kind of involves books and reading and so their opportunities into um, you know further studies and 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 job opportunities is very restricted. So, and it relates back to that. Um, it relates to self-awareness. It relates to confidence. It relates to resilience, and it relates to developing skills, skills that allow them to be successful, but also um, opportunities to get appropriate support. And so, for some students, uh, some of the technology is just fantastic. I mean, mm. we've been um, working just recently with um, scanning pens in the UK. So um, that's something that we now sell through DSF. Because when I was in the UK having a look at some of the technology, I sort of talked to quite a few people with dyslexia, and they were finding the scanning pens to be just fantastic. Um, they're now approved for use in all public examinations in the UK and they're great because literally the student sits in the same room as everybody else. They've got their scanning pen and they're listening to the text as they sit there um, in terms of the exam questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and for, for some students, that's a fabulous um, tool. They really uh, make massive use of it. Other students, not so much. You know, it's not there. They would, they would rather kind of have some other kind of mechanism to help them. But finding the things that will help you um, as an individual are really very important because, as you say, people are different and that's what we kind of try to impress on somebody when somebody talks about the gift of dyslexia um it's 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 a bit of a misnomer because there is no specific gift attached to having dyslexia there are it depends so much on the individual and what their particular strengths are um and and i think that finding uh, those strengths and finding um particular skill sets that uh, can become passions for individual people. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's true of all people, not just people with dyslexia. But I think that um, it's it's very important that people feel that they can go on and do kind of almost whatever it is that they want to do, as Definitely. long as they get the right support and help. That's our whole philosophy and why we're doing this. Is so people, whether you want to be a cleaner or an astronaut that if you've got the supports in place, you can do any of it. And that we're not geniuses. (laughs) I find it really frustrating to go to some of these forums and the kids are wearing genius bands. I'm a dyslexic genius. And I think, no, we're just a group of people that have trouble reading. Some of us go on to do, you know, become astronauts. Some of us become beauticians, whatever, whatever makes us happy. But we've got the right supports in place to do that. Yes, exactly. It is such an important message to get out there, I think. But we are running out of time, so okay. I'm just wondering if you could give us um, 
what you hope might we might see over the next five years. I mean, you're the president of Ausbald, which we haven't had a chance to touch on today. But I think I'm hoping you might come back and we can have another conversation because yeah, oh, well, it's I'm been great happy today. To have a chat. Um, uh, I, in fact, I probably talk a bit too much sometimes, but um, I. Um, I think Ausbeld is the association of spells. Um, so each state, oh, no, each state has a, um, a spell. Not every territory has a spell, which is a bit disappointing. But um, there has been some discussion recently with some people in Tasmania about perhaps um, resurrecting spell there because there used to be one a while, uh, many years ago. And um, I think the work that we do is very much around supporting families, supporting skill, schools, building awareness. So I think we've done quite well in the last 10 years, but we've got a long way to, long way to go. Um, we recently developed um, two guides, the um, Understanding Learning Difficulties, a practical guide for teachers and educators, and then a um, Understanding Learning Difficulties, a practical guide for parents. The parent um, guide has recently gone up onto the website, so it's completely accessible, the whole guide, and can be even downloaded from the mm. website, which is uldforparents.com. We'll put that up on the website so people yeah. can access um, it. And it's a really good website and we're adding bits of film and everything to it all the time. But um, it's uh, it's got a lot of information in it. And I think that building awareness and building a common language, and I think, as you say, this issue around definition, understanding, uh, getting rid of some of the sort of misconceptions and building a community um base that will ensure that all students um, don't can access support if if they need it and feel okay about accessing that mm. support and believe that they along with everybody else in the community has the right to a fantastic education an enjoyable education uh, an inspiring education and one in which they can hope to uh, uh, proceed from into whatever area they wish to um, choose and that they have the confidence to do that. I mean, for me, I think that's a huge, huge message and that's part of the reason that we're doing this work on self-esteem and reading disorders with Curtin because ultimately from there, we want to be able to develop some suggestions about how do we make this happen for all kids because we see some students with, with learning disorders who are confident and resilient and we see others who aren't and we're kind of trying to say well what is it that leads those children down the confident and resilient path and what is it that means those children aren't what well, we've got to find that so that we can help those who aren't and then work with schools to improve the way they support students. Sounds like fascinating research. I can't wait to have you back on the show to talk to you about that because I have a couple of thoughts on it as well. So okay, good well, to have, always happy good to, to have chat. a chat. So yeah. thank you so much, Mandy, for coming on the show today and sharing your wealth of knowledge and experience um, in this area. And I really look forward to talking to you again in the future about it. So thank you so much. Have Brilliant. a great day. Okay, you too. Thank Lovely you. talking to you. Okay, bye.